Girl Tries Life podcast. My name is Victoria Smith. I am your host and today we are on episode number 64. So today we are joined by one of the most prolific authors that I know, Jane Porter. So truth be told, when I first heard about Jane, I was registering for my very first attendance at the Surrey International Writers Conference. And as part of that attendee package, you get what's called a blue pencil session with a published author or an editor. And you ideally want to sign up with someone that writes or edits in the genre uh, that you write in so that you're getting the most helpful feedback. And with Jane writing in both romance and women's fiction, I knew she was a perfect fit for me. Little did I realize when I signed up that I was actually getting access to literally one of the most prolific writers that I know. At the time of recording this podcast episode, Jane is on her 59th book. 59. Just going to repeat that so we're all clear. So for those of you that dream of writing one book... You can see how Jane has made a career from her writing. So not only has she written in both romance and women's fiction, but one of her novels, Flirting with 40, was actually turned into a lifetime movie with Heather Locklear. So we talk a little bit about uh, about her writing journey. And eager to try her hand at the other side of writing, in 2013, Jane founded Thule Publishing. So at the time, they brought on a few writers to launch their digital works. It was really, 2013 was a really... It, it, just shortly after that time that digital publishing was really taking on uh, its time. And now Thule Publishing works with over 90 authors and have published over 450 works of fiction. So my favorite thing about Jane that you discover through this interview is her tenacity. We talk about what it took for her to get published and how many rejections that she had to go through and what that actually takes then for someone to really commit to it and to des- to decide that this is what you care about and this is how you're going to improve and this is how you're going to go after your dreams. So we talk about how she refused to give up. We also talk about how creative people often have to push through challenging periods in their lives, whether it's sort of health struggles or whether it's, you know, emotional challenges that you're going through. Definitely, definitely a challenge that we discussed. And then we talk about the Thule publishing side of things, like what it actually takes to run a publishing a publishing house, what an average day looks like for Jane, which is actually harder, whether it's the writing or the publishing side of things. And we talk about you know, from that publishing perspective, what she knows now that wish that she wished she'd known when she started Thule. There's so much more packed into this interview, but in a nutshell, this is really an interview that it's about tenacity. We talk about publishing and we talk about the importance of showing up and being authentic. I was so pleased to be joined by Jane. Now, this podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is powered by ATB. Now on June 7th, so in just a week, they you can join them for a series of live recordings of Made in Alberta podcasts featuring interviews with innovators and future-focused thinkers. So there's going to be so many members from the Alberta Podcast Network that are going to be there. There's going to be That's So Maven, Louisa Campos from A Branded World, The Work Not Work Show, Future Chat, and so many more. So the, we're going to you can explore the themes that are related to health, innovation, entrepreneurship, transformation as a marketing tool, new frontiers in energy, tech developments that are changing our world, and so much more. It is going to be incredible. And each live show is going to be about 45 minutes long. 
with a 15-minute networking break in between. It's going to be a lot of fun. And the fun fact is it's completely free. So I definitely <laughs> want you to know about uh, know about that and to participate if you can. It's going to be such a fantastic event. So you can find a link to that in the show notes. And today's show notes are at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash 64. Or you can go to podcastsconnect.eventbrite.ca. But again, that link will be in today's show notes. Now, the other thing I would just want to let you know about really quickly on that event is that our friends from ATB will also be on hand to answer your questions about all of the transformative things that they're up to in terms of AI, blockchain, robotics, and more. So it's definitely going to be an interesting, interesting event. Now, given that we're talking about arts and culture in terms of writing and publishing, I do want to quickly tell you about ATB's branch for arts and culture. It is a clubhouse. It's an arts venue. It's a financial institution for Albertan creatives and cultural workers. So members to the clubhouse basically have access to industry-specific banking services and career development resources that are designed to help them do their very best work. So they understand the challenges the artists face. Pretty unique because they consider themselves artists themselves. So I definitely would encourage you to find out a little bit more about it. And I will link to that again in today's show notes. So girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash 64. So without further ado, let's head over to today's interview. Well, thank you so much, Jane, for joining us on the podcast. We're so pleased to have you. Uh, thank you. I'm so glad to talk to you. So I, I guess we'll start at the beginning because that's the most logical place. <laughs> when did you first write your very first novel? Was it like as a child or in your adult years? Oh, I started writing really early. My dad was a professor and he also, when he wasn't teaching, he would be typing away on his typewriter or writing longhand in these yellow notepads, legal pads. And so I wrote my first story on my own, like at Christmas. And then within a year, I was writing my first novel, I called it. It was a knockoff of Wizard of Oz <laughs> with pictures. And then another year later, I wrote my first novel, and that was a takeoff of Little Women. And it's interesting because years later, I did become an English teacher, and I have a Master's of Arts in Writing. And one of the things we always talk about is you read, the better you read, the better you write. The more you write, the better you read. And I just on my own would read something and then want to write. And I think that's kind of led to these early writing attempts because I love to read so much. And then for me, it was absolutely natural to then kind of do a, I don't, I don't think I meant to copy anything, but I wanted to do my version of something I had read. Yeah, absolutely. So when you graduated high school, did you go straight into training to become a teacher? No, you know, I started submitting my writing uh, freshman, sophomore year at UCLA. I started submitting to Harlequin in Canada and then the Mills and Boone offices in London. Back then, they weren't all one and the same. They were two separate companies. And I was really serious about writing. And um, my father had died when I was in high school. And so I knew if I ever wanted to be a writer, I would need to be able to support my family. So I never had this idea of writing as a art form and lofty literary. For me, writing would have to pay bills and to take care of family. And I 
loved commercial fiction. I loved romance. I loved this idea of creating, you know, wonderful, fun stories for women. And so early on, I even switched my major at UCLA towards the idea that I would one day be able to be a writer. And when I left school, I had day jobs. And then I wrote all night, every night, all weekend. With that said, it took me 15 years of writing and submitting before I sold my first book and 14 rejected books. And I had a whole other career in sales and marketing. And um, eventually I did go back and earn a teaching credential, but wasn't wasn't the first choice, probably because both my parents were in some field of education and teaching was not what I wanted to do initially. Okay, so 14 rejected books, like that is some perseverance. How did you, how did you get through that? Oh, I always, I uh, always say that, you know, the fairy godmothers hovered over my crib and gave me like in Sleeping Beauty a gift. My gift, unfortunately, or fortunately is tenacity. I cannot give up on something, not something that means a lot to me. And the more people said, you know, you can't or you won't, or the more, say, an uncle would sigh and say, oh, you're still trying, just the more resolved I became to do it. And writing, I've learned, is a lot like a muscle. When you first go to the gym, you know, you might not really know what you're doing. And then over time, you begin to say, okay, you're going to work the front of a muscle and the back of the muscle, and you're going to list on these days, and you need this much time to recover. But over time, you know, you, you develop that muscle memory in the gym and you get stronger and you, you, you fine tune it. And writing was a lot like that. And the closer I became, you know, to getting better and stronger and the more elusive it still felt, because back then there was no digital market. There was no other choice, but traditional publishing with a traditional publishing schedule. And I just wouldn't give up. I think that that's one of the things I knew I had lost people in my life. I've had hard times but this was something for me. I wasn't doing this really for anyone else, but for me. And I couldn't give up on the one thing I wanted for me. Yeah. So when were you able to transition from teaching to full-time writing? Like, how long did that period of your life take? You know, I it was when my second baby, when I stayed home with my first, said complications. I had to leave teaching just before he was born. The last couple months, I was put on bed rest. And then... Each of my babies are IVF, and so when the second one we started trying to make him, it was, again, very difficult, lots of bed rest. And so I had an agreement with my husband that when he was a couple of years old, the second one, I would go back to teaching if I wasn't bringing in any income from writing. And then when my second one was six months old, I sold my first book to the London office of Harlequin and almost immediately had you know, three book contract and then within two years a four book and I never needed, you know, I, I was, I was earning good money and it was, it was exciting after all those years. It was really exciting. So I pushed very, very hard for years, four books or five books and adding in women's fiction and other projects. And I stayed like that up until, you know, the economy started shifting around in 08, 09 and borders in the U S stopped taking on new books and then closed and Barnes and Noble cut back. And, I think those economic shifts really impacted publishing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And do you think that you, like, do you consider yourself a fast writer or is it, is it sort of by force because of the way the contracts are set up? Like Harlequin typically has those 
three book a year contracts, which for a lot of writers is daunting. You know, I don't think I'm fast. I think I'm tenacious. Yeah. I slug away at it. There's no, okay, here we go. I'm breezing through. And I write really emotional books. Even the ones for the London office are really intense and emotional. That's kind of my brand, especially with the London Harlequin Presents. And so I, even if I want to write a little bit lighter, they would say, but this isn't my readers come to you. And those books were actually the hardest thing in that I went through a divorce and the books had these featured these tough, tough alphas. And I had been married to a tough, tough alpha. And suddenly it was just, it was a lot. And that's where my first kind of foray into chick lit came about. I just needed to push away a little bit and say something about real world. And so I began to do three Harlequins a year and one women's fiction. And then later it was three Harlequins and two women's fiction. And then later it was two Harlequins and three women's fiction. So it's always been at least four books, four to six from, and then when I was divorced, I was the sole source of support for my two boys. So, you know, if we, it was everything. I had to pay the bills with my writing. Thank God. Thank goodness. All those years ago when I was a nerdy little high school student, I knew if I wanted to write, I had to be able to pay bills. And it was true. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned like the going through a tough time, like a divorce. Cause I know a lot of romance writers who talk about how it's, it can be difficult to write romance when you're going through, whether it's your own marital challenges or rough periods in your life. So it sounds like you a little bit switched or added a genre to it in terms of like the women's fiction, but how did you still push through writing the romance? Was it, was it more challenging? I don't know. I think for me, the divorce was less difficult writing through than say all my in vitro treatments, you know, all those shots, seven shots a day, the, you know, that was really hard because I found the changing elements of estrogen, progesterone. I, I really found that fertility issues and being flooded with things and that intensely physical roller coaster was very hard on my writer brain. I know that estrogen is linked to language. So when we're pumping it up here, or playing with a progesterone and then we're declining estrogen, at, you know, after a baby, that, that impacted my writing far more. There was something in my brain that would allow me, maybe because my marriage was never necessarily an easy one. My husband, from the time I met him, was a paraplegic, and he had serious health challenges, and our life at home was extremely challenging, that I was able to kind of escape this reality of his physical limitations, of my often needing to be like a nurse for him by writing. So I already had that practice down even during the divorce was, Writing was, you know, a discipline, but it was my job and you have to show up. It's again, I've used it to support family from the time my kids were born. So you have, you, you can't choose not to go to work. Uh, does it make the words flow? No, but you keep your behind in the chair over <laughs> and over and over. And, and I have to say social media has grown so much since those early days. I mean, you really didn't have all the options for distraction in yeah. like say 95 through 98 early, you know, 
I look at what we have now and I think it is so much harder to focus now. Oh, for sure. Well, I, I believe that as someone who deals with social media, but and it, it's hard to turn off, I think. I just think that it's interesting. I got, this is why I love women and writing for women, because we have things like babies and after babies and taking care of family, and then we're juggling career, as, and then we're juggling our own writing goals. Or It's, it's a lot. It, what women do is amazing, and that's why I love love. writing for women because I think women are truly incredible. Well, I can't not agree with you there. It's so interesting what you're saying, though, about about hormones affecting affecting your writing. That's not something I I would have thought of the emotional side of IVF, but I wouldn't have thought about the actual chemistry, like brain changes to your um, changes to your brain chemistry. I wouldn't have thought of that. You know, I I always found that it's easiest to write towards like the third trimester, part of the second, and, and in the third up until the last month when I was just, say, sleepy and ready to be done. But there's maybe because I've had, you know, no baby that just came. You know, I, I used to tease that I thought there would be something incredibly exciting about, quote, unquote, having an orgasm and discovering you were pregnant. Because for me, it was bright lights and doctors and surgeries and incredible, uncomfortable appointments, and that made a baby. So... I thought, wow, other people are having like really good sex and <laughs> getting pregnant. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. But with that, I think because each of my babies were so planned and so expensive, they were like, you know, I never felt like I could afford to complain about how rigorous the treatments were. And I think that that's probably part of my personality with that tenacity thing. I've really fought hard for everything in my career. I've never been kind of a golden girl, and I'm comfortable with that. I'm like that little train, that little engine that just, you know, keeps keeps trying. And I think it really is a good model for, for the average working writer. You know, we might not ever get, like, glory. We might not ever have a huge moment. But you can have a really great career of lots of really good moments attached to each other. Well, I I think that's fabulous advice for aspiring writers. Is there any other sort of key tidbits that you that you often give when you do your blue pencil or whatever sessions with aspiring writers? I really believe every writer has her own or his own themes, that we all have something that we're here to say. And I I don't want to tell another writer what that should be. I do believe it's smart to look at the market and see what is selling and then that way you're in a position to say yes that might be what's selling but that's not what I want to write or if you want to be like me and say I need to earn x amount a year because I want to send my kids to school I want to pay for medical things I want them to play you know baseball or soccer and I've always tried to keep an eye on the market to see where I could fit in and over time since I've you know, I've sold, I sold in 2000, and I'm working on my 59th book right now. Sometimes I've chosen to have a smaller slice of pie so that I'm happy with what I'm writing, but I'm always kind of aware of the pies that are selling so that there's a place for me in the market. And I, I do think it's important for writers to realize what we're doing is a craft, but it's also a business. And no one should start a business without being aware of what's going on in their industry. 
Absolutely. And it's so easy in creative fields, I think, to forget about the business side of things. And that at the end of the day, if you are producing this product, you need to have a consumer on the other end. Absolutely. I think about my readers all the time. When I first sold my first book, I don't think I knew who my reader was yet. I, when I sold my third one, I still wasn't sure. By my 10th book, I knew from reviews, reader mail, editors, I knew why people were coming to me. I knew why when a reader would pick me up, and I also knew why readers didn't want to read me. And I, I have a strong voice, and I have a strong storytelling style, and I am not for everyone. And that's where, again, I've chosen to accept I'm going to have a smaller slice of pie, but I don't and probably can't totally change the way I am on paper. I have amazing writer friends who can, they can stretch themselves a little more and give themselves this challenge of becoming this. And I really admire it. You know, I, I kind of know what my groove is and I, I keep an eye out for what I can do, but things are in the market are also cyclical. What might not be as popular right now will probably come back in five years. So I think also being patient and, and keeping a sense of humor about it, not letting it make you crazy because it's an intense, you know, writing is hard. It's yeah. an intense career. So who is your reader then? My reader. I think my reader loves, if they're going to buy a Jane Porter book, they love the story of the good girl, the girl next door, the nice girl who hasn't yet had, say, the fairy tale. She's hardworking. She's relatable. She's a good, she's kind. She's not the kind who's going to be snarky. She's not going to spit in someone's coffee when she's upset. I mean, she's a really good person but she hasn't had the happy ever after. And whether I do that in women's fiction or romance, I really love giving her, in a way, a modern-day fairy tale where it's not totally implausible, but something good always will happen for her in my book. Yeah. Because I really believe good things do happen in life, and I, I love that idea of not ever giving up on the happy ever after. Yeah. Well, and it's such an interesting, not sector, genre of, uh, of fiction. I saw your clips in the Love Between the Covers documentary. Oh, yes. And I highly recommend listeners have a look at that because it was just so well done and representing this genre that makes so much money for the publishing industry that people really poo-poo all over. And it's romance writers need to be proud. You know, I'm very fiercely proud. And I, you know, that's funny because that's one of the opening lines in the film is that I'm really proud of what I do, but I'm also proud of what we give back to women. And I think that's because a lot of times women are not thanked or appreciated for their daily choices of, of giving and caring and shouldering. Um, we're truly the fabric of a community. We're there at birth. We're there often the ones holding hands at death. I mean, we were there for all the hard things. And so for me, women are hugely heroic. And what a romance novel does is it validates the female and her choices, and it validates her choice to love. And the women I know choose to love every day. We, we keep showing up, and we show up. And so a romance isn't just some of my favorite ones. There's no sex in them. There's just great stories about challenges and life and loving and I you know I think there's this idea that a romance is one thing and it's a huge huge you know a, a array of 
from very sweet and your inspirational stories are very clean, no sex, no swear words, no promiscuity in any form to incredibly hot erotic. And with that, within that, there's tremendous diversity. So I love it. And I think for me, as a, I'm a massive romance reader. And it's because it always heals me. There's something about reading about people being loved and accepted that always heals my heart a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So not only are you a writer, but you launched a publishing house, Tool Publishing. Yes, Tuli is how we... Oh, sorry, Tuli. So how and why did it come about? You know, because Jane Porter is also a little impulsive, along with tenacity. Somebody must have dropped some fairy dust of impulsive on me. <laughs> um, I wanted to do a creative project with some writing friends. And with the digital market opening up, it was an opportunity that I could reach out with three author friends and do a project. And we all were going to do our own connected thing. And then we're going to do some of our own and a little bit became something else and something else. And then Jane Porter's like for me an LLC. And then a couple of years later, we had you know, 60 stories. And then one more year after that, we had 300 and it just kept going. And so now it's our fifth year. Um, in September, since we were f- published our first story, and we've published over 450 stories, we have over 90 authors all over the world. I think we have like 22 in Australia. Uh, we have like eight Canadians. You know, we have seven or eight in the UK, two in South Africa. I mean, to me, it's thrilling to work with writers all over the world and support them. And so, like, were you seeing gaps in the market, or you just wanted to take advantage of digital, or? You know, I think in part two things, the the market itself was squishing as, you know, Barnes & Noble had less shelf space. There was no more Walden books. There's no B. Dalton books. Borders was gone. There was fewer places for print. And so a lot of traditional publishers were thinning out their rosters. They were cutting back on what they could take and who they could support. And they didn't quite yet know how to do digital. They didn't know how to support something in digital. And I do think digital publishing is a different animal than traditional. The readers are a little bit different and they buy a little bit differently. And so I thought, let's take some of these incredibly talented authors I have worked with and let's do some fun projects. So a lot of our early projects were multi-author series, a bride series, a cowboy rodeo series. Um, an international bride series. The point being, letting authors work together and play together, create together, brainstorm. And it was really kind of exciting, but also stimulating in a creative way for these writers who've been told for so long what a story was and how, how it should be told. And giving them a bit of freedom saying, listen, you've published 50 books, you've published 100 books, you've published 75. What do you think your readers are coming to you for? Why would a reader want a C.J. Carmichael book? Why would a reader want a Lillian Darcy? And by opening it up, readers, I mean, our writers really enjoyed it. And our readers began to respond to these stories that were told by favorite authors of theirs, but the box wasn't quite there. It was, it was good. And we learned a lot. We learned what didn't really work. We learned what did. So I think I'm a little bit adaptive that way. I learn a lot just by trial and error and I'm very comfortable shifting like, Oh, okay, this is what we've learned. Let's do this differently. Let's, 
And I had a great uh, publishing partner, Megan Farrell. She was the first employee hired. She became our managing editor. And she's been here from book three on. And, you know, she just graduated from the University of Texas in Austin in a psychology degree, which I think you'd have to have in working closely with with me. Uh, (laughs) And she was, she's just, I mean, she's smart. She's funny. She's cool and calm. I mean, she's got that great Texas can-do spirit. And we just jumped in. And I think she was the perfect person. If we had hired someone else, I don't think Tuli would be here today. She just collaborated so well with me. And she was willing to learn this whole industry that she knew nothing about and attended conferences in Berlin and Australia and London. I'm literally all over the world and just started from nothing. And now it's pretty exciting what we're doing. Yeah. Well, so given what you're saying about you've learned so much, what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you'd started Thule? I didn't think publishers did much. So I was at the very (laughs) beginning. I didn't think that the publishers needed to keep much percentage. I didn't know why a publisher couldn't, for example, keep only 20 and pay the author 80. I thought the time we were also starting, it was easy to make money in digital. All you had to do is keep putting books up. But I think, you know, Amazon and some of the others saw how much money successful authors were doing and kept figuring out how they needed to keep a bigger piece. Like, why should the writer make that much? They didn't maybe need twice that much. So I think it's an interesting dilemma. Those who started in indie with digital have... It started early, like 211, 210, 212. I think they've been very successful. They got in at a really good time and learned how to play this new world of publishing. I think some of us who came over from traditional are a little more battle-scarred because we approach it like traditional. There's a certain way of writing and doing. I think Thule's this little sweet spot of we try to think as indie as possible, and yet we're still provided traditional experience for an author who does not want to be in charge of all their cover art, their blurbs. They don't want to be in charge of all their marketing. They don't want to do all the uploading. So I think what makes Thule a good partner is by being founded by an author, we're always wanting the author to feel comfortable, to feel like they can ask all the questions, that they have control, they can help drive their book or their series if they want it. You know, I want to be very respectful because we wouldn't have anything if we didn't have the author. It all starts with a story. And and yet, I'm one of those writers. I don't want to do all these other pieces. And so, yes, even though I publish with Thule, I don't do all these other things. There's, you know, I hand over my book team that's in charge now of taking it to the market and supporting it in the market. So when you ask, though, what would I do differently? I would say now I know you, you know, it really is a team sport if you're publishing quite a few books. I, I think... Publishers do tremendous work at their ends, and I have so much more respect, and I now know even better. If a publisher said, we don't want to continue the series to me, I know now why. If they've said, we love you, we love your voice, you know, this series didn't do what we wanted, or this one book had so much traction, this next one didn't, we're not totally sure what to do. I understand all those things. It's not really an arbitrary, it's all about numbers. Yeah. and. And, and some of the books you, we love in-house so much 
aren't always the ones that get traction in the market. Mm-hmm. And then there's one that you're thinking, I'm not sure about this. You know, the mainstream market will just love it to bits. And so I think it's an, it, for publishers who publish a wide spectrum, you know, I do think romance helps pay for some of the maybe more literary works for those little jewels that not everybody's going to want to read, but the publishing company thinks it's important to still release. And so I, I appreciate it and respect it. And I'm, I'm grateful because after being, you know, spending 14 years trying to get published, and now that I've been published since 2000, another 18 years of being published, this is a massive chunk of my life. And Thule has made, helped me make sense of it all. And to understand your craft is important. You need to know how to write. You need to be smart about it. But then you have to be willing to show up over and over and over. And it's not about writing one book. Yeah. Or three books. It's literally. Well, you're on 59. That's insane. Yeah. So how do you divide your days like between writing and between your work with Thule? What's an average day look like for you? I long. I probably start, you know, as soon as my youngest is out the door, he's nine uh, this week. But as soon as he's gone, I start, you know, handling what I call my Thule business for the first couple of hours. So by 7.30 until maybe 8.30 or 9, it's pretty much too late. And then I start, unless I'm needed, I try to peel into starting my writing. And then around 1 or 2, I'll do too late for another couple hours and shift sometimes then into, if I need to do more writing, writing. And But when I'm on deadline, that's usually the last two, three weeks of a book hard. I, I try to push too later back in the day. And then I do almost all my too stuff after dinner until maybe midnight. So it just depends. I, I, but you know, I was talking to um, Maggie Marr, who's an amazing writer and she's our Julie's entertainment attorney as well. And I think there's some of us, we just love to work. I really, I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I wasn't busy. I I would be a terrible lady that goes to lunch. I don't really enjoy pedicures that much. (laughs) I don't want to go to a lot of Pilates classes. I'd rather be, you know, a little softer and, be attached to my computer it's it's sad but no it's true. hey I love to work but I also love my bed <laughs> I do you know I think there's something really though invigorating for me of the back and forth because I, I guess right around the time Thule was we were starting Thule back in 2013 I was kind of sick of me I was sick of being I'd been on book tour for my Brennan series because those three books came out every six months and I did big national like like publicity stuff and I was all over and book signings and speaking and I think I was up in Surrey during one of those and I I just was like I'm tired of me I'm tired of talking about me and my books I'm tired of publicity and promo I I had I've had some really great moments you know I've had the lifetime book I've got and Lifetime book, I mean, the book that became the Lifetime movie. And yeah. then I've got a couple books in production for Hallmark. And I've had financial success. I've had some bestsellers. But after a while, I just, maybe it's the teaching part of me. I really wanted to work with other writers who either didn't quite know how to reach the next level or had tremendous talent and they didn't understand or see the business element of having a clear brand and you know they would write one of this and then one of that and one of this and they'd wonder why they had no readers Mm -hmm. and 
once I would explain, well, if you're writing a romantic suspense, that's really different from contemporary romance. Those are two different markets. So you're starting two different businesses. And then if you're throwing in a paranormal, you now have three completely different reading, reader groups. And readers don't know what to do with that. They, they're not going to just jump over and read your other books. A lot of readers have a certain genre. And so it was really good for me to begin to put all those years of writing and speaking and workshops and keynotes into supporting other women. Um, I will say there's some women who have struggled. And I think, to be honest, because they just don't care. They don't really want to learn the business. They just want to do what they want. And that's valid. I think those are writers that should self-publish. Yeah. Um, I think it's hard to partner with a publisher if you just want to do whatever it is you want to do. Because yeah. and we pull, we've taken on some of those books and then they don't really earn and the author's frustrated and then Tooley's frustrated because we run a very tight little company and we want to make sure everybody can take home a salary that works here. So I think it's been exciting figuring out, okay, Instead of taking a random book and a random book, let's look at acquiring a really smart, fun series. Let's look for somebody who's written maybe three connected stories. Things that that way in the digital market, you get more just discoverability and you become more visible. Mm Because you can use one story for a promotion. And if readers discover it, they immediately go buy books two and three. So it's been, again, it's a challenge, but it's been really fun figuring out how do we take a debut author and get her some attention in this market? Or how do we take an author who's ready for a career change and play with that? I I don't know. I love book girls so much. Yeah. Which do you find more challenging, writing a book or running a publishing house? You know, now that we're kind of out of the red every single day and month, <laughs> I think the Tuli's begun to be a bit of a, uh, it's, it's, it's still really challenging because you want every book to do well. And there's no sure thing ever. So, I think the challenge there is tempering people's expectations and getting them to realize just because they have a publisher, they still need to do their part. They still need to build their readers. They need to hopefully have a street team. They need to know how to support their own books because, again, it's their own business. And you can't leave it to your publisher because your publisher could change. And then where will you be? So I always feel like the educating the authors is probably the biggest challenge. And then... Writing remains hard for me. I mean, I, I kind of bleed and weep as I write. It's it's never going to be easy. But I do feel like, um, I've, I've even thought, like, could I, when I started Tuli, I thought, am I ready to give up writing? Am I ready to be done? And part of me is like, yes, I don't want that <laughs> horrible writing panic. And then I think, but who am I without words? So the two of them are it's kind of a really good combination, especially since now I work on film quite a bit. Uh, we've got 15 stories in different forms of development. Holy. Um, most are with Hallmark, but several are with Light, ones with Lifetime, something with Netflix. And I really enjoy pitching for film, working with production companies. So that's been a, another great offshoot. I love story. I love creative. And so it's kind of balancing them all, but... I don't think I would want really at this point one without the others. I love it. And I, I love your story and how tenacious you've been throughout your lifetime. It's fantastic. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move into the five questions that we ask all of our interviewees yep. to wrap up. So 
you may have already touched on this, or it might have absolutely nothing to do with publishing or writing, but what are the the things or the projects that get you really fired up in a good way? I love being told I can't do something. <laughs> so the project that people say, I go, you can't do it, or that won't happen, or that won't work. I immediately start going, hmm, how can I make it work? And then I do it. I love, I love like hard faces of mountains and... I don't know why. I think I must be, again, a little bit crazy. But I do love throwing myself at hard things. So I get, I get excited about the hard book to write, the story where you can you redeem this hero or the character who's so broken and wounded. How do you make that into a fizzy Christmas romance? And then mm-hmm. in the middle of writing, I'm going, this is awful, awful, awful. Why did I think I could do this? And, but then when it's done... I think there's such a relief and a satisfaction and a pleasure at accomplishing something very difficult. And so I think that that gets me fired up. Yeah. Well, it's great. Now, this is a hard question, I think, for a lot of avid readers. But but what's the most inspiring book you've read in the past few years or a couple? All right. Well, this one, there's, this one is, a, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called Grandma Gatewood's Walk. No, I and haven't. it is a story. It was what's that? I haven't heard of that. No. Okay, it was um, published in two sixteen in April, so it's a couple of years old. But it is like an inspiring story of the woman who saved the Appalachian Trail, and she was this older woman. I think she was in her late sixties at the time, and she's a great grandmother. And she was going out for a walk, and she left her Ohio town and with very little money and just a change of clothes and disappeared. And she ended up traveling like all 800 miles of this 2000, or she walked 800 miles of this 2000 mile trail. And <laughs> her goal was to try to save this. And I just, I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of, one of my readers suggested it to me and it was a really great story. Cause I'd never heard of this woman before. I'd never heard this story. And especially with all the things that go on in U.S. politics now and all the noise. I just loved it. It, it was very inspiring. Yeah. Oh, that sounds fantastic. It sounds like the, the grandma version of Wild. Yes. Oh, there you go. Absolutely. There you go. Do you have a favorite quote or words that you live by? You know, I, on my desk, I probably shouldn't say this one, but on my desk, it's framed, and I said it to Megan Farrell early on when she came to work uh, with me for Tule, and she gave it to me framed it for Christmas that year, and it said, I make shit up for a living, um, <laughs> and the reason, it sounds weird, but sometimes I take an incredible amount of heat for a story or a review. A review is just crushing, and sometimes people get really upset with you about decisions you made for your books. Um, and other times people are like authors would just be mad at me. And then I, I learned to say, you know what? I make shit up for a little, this is not, this is not the real world. There are real world problems out there. There's real crises in our, in our world, environmental, social, you know, there's a lot going on. So what I like about that quote is I create fiction and I'm really, really lucky to be a writer, but I can't ever allow that what I do to get in my way of having a really great life and not to let the public side of it 
you know, with your numbers, your sales, your reviews. Maybe forget, I, I'm a fiction writer. I'm a romance writer. And that's a really cool thing to do. I get paid to make stuff up. Yeah. I love it. What's the best life lesson you've learned or advice that you've been given? I, you know, this for me with tenacity, I, you just don't give up. Yeah. I think for people, you know, if you need to like retreat a little bit and rethink your situation, if you need time to reflect, one of the things I've learned is you don't have to make a decision right away on things either. You can sit on something until you know what you want to do. But I, I, I really believe, you know, as I'm working with younger 20s who have come to work for Chile and uh, life is hard. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge and it's going to be one decision after another. And don't be afraid to make a decision and then don't be afraid to make another one. But basically, don't quit and you're going to be okay. Yeah. And finally, Jane, what does it mean to you to live your best life? I think it's to be yourself to be authentically you, good or bad, because how much better to succeed or fail as you than to try to be someone that you think others want you to be. So I love, I have a lot of warts, you know, like, you know, they're just, you know, they're not real warts, but um, I had bumps and flaws and that's me. And my real friends know who I really am and they know I'm not I'm not perfect. I'm short-tempered and demanding. I get easily exasperated. And, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm passionate and loyal. And I think just being you and not, not worry. You don't have to be perfect. Just show up and be you and don't quit. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Victoria.